Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Beginning of verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 14 this morning. Just as a reminder, we believe that these words were given by inspiration of God. They are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge. John 21.1 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, from your word this morning, I pray that you would remind us of these glorious truths. Lord, I am aware of my task this morning and how great it is, greater then I have the capacity to do. And so, Lord, I pray for your help. We pray that you would encourage us, that if there is one here still in his or her sins, that you would convict, draw to yourself. For your people this morning, I pray that you would encourage us from the truth of your word, encourage us from our fellowship with you, but also from our fellowship with each other. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, I will admit that the text that we are looking at is a strange one in my finite understanding. After writing in John 20, 
verses 30 and 31, what in my opinion would seem to be a really fantastic ending to John's gospel, he decides to keep writing. And I think it's a, it's a strange shift if, if you're looking at the text and as we've studied it. Verse 30 and 31 says, now Jesus, of chapter 20 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And for me, if I'm writing an essay, that's where I finish it. But praise the Lord that uh, he's wiser than I. But we still have to come to this question of like, what, what is the purpose of this text? And I um, even admitted this morning as we were talking through the sermon that, that that really is the first question you have to ask when you preach a sermon is what is the purpose of this text? What is, what is this text here for? Why is it recorded? What is, what is the purpose for God's people that this text is in the Scripture? And yet, this week, that was the hardest answer to find. What, what is the purpose of this story? It seems like a really interesting story, a really glorious story even, but, but for all that John has said, why, why chapter 21? I think that's what we want to explore this morning. And we find as bookends to our text the phrase that Jesus revealed himself. And so this morning, the sermon in a sentence is that Jesus reveals himself. Uh, we're going to look at the way Jesus reveals himself in his control, in his provision, and in his relationship to his people. So I just want to dive right in to verse 1. Jesus reveals himself in his control. If you look at verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The first thing that I want to point out is this word, again. We know that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples after his resurrection. We've been studying it for the last few weeks. The first time he comes in chapter 20, he appears to the disciples. They're in the house. The door is locked. He walks in. He declares peace over them. The disciples were glad, and he provided them with this this sending in verse 21 of chapter 20, he says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He breathed on them, and then he left. As we studied last week, he came back. The disciples were in the house. He again declared peace. Thomas was there, who had, who had originally not seen him and who was somewhat doubting what, whether or not it was true that he had risen from the grave, and Thomas got to touch him, and Thomas ex exclaimed, my Lord and my God. But in chapter 21, we don't see this same kind of formula, even, for Jesus' appearance to the disciples. In fact, I think it's interesting that it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, and then it, doesn't, it takes four verses for us to even be introduced to Jesus in the, in the story. He says Jesus revealed himself, and then he goes on to talk about who all was there and what they were doing. I think also it's important that John notes who was there. So it says Simon Peter was there. It says Thomas was there. Nathaniel 
the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then other disciples who weren't mentioned. Peter and John, I think, are important because we're going to see as we finish the book of John that, that Peter and John are really central to what Jesus has to say in this final chapter. But he notices Thomas. He says Thomas was there. I think this is helpful for us because as, as we look at this, this is further proof that what Jesus had done in the life of Thomas was real. Thomas was there. Thomas, the one who he had just called to believe, who he had commanded to believe, and he's believing. And it's just a strange place to be for these disciples because Jesus had come to them in chapter 20. He had he'd given them a commission. He said, I, as I was sent, I'm sending you. He breathed on them. But seemingly, like, it wasn't time for the gospel to go forth yet. He hadn't ascended. The day of Pentecost had not arrived. And so what is Peter's response? He says, I'm going fishing. Now, I want to admit um, that in past sermons, I've been a little too harsh on Peter in this moment. I think that was one of the misconceptions I had coming in is in my own arrogance. I said, Peter just does not get it. Right? Peter is just lost. Peter's way out in left field, and he just doesn't understand what Jesus has done. It's like, Peter's sitting here waiting. He says, well, if we're going to be sitting here waiting, I'm going to go fishing. That's what I know how to do. That's what I understand. And the others were there, and they agreed, and they followed with him. And they fished all night. It says in verse uh, 3, they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, fishermen in this day would fish all night so that they could take the fish fresh in the morning to the market and sell them, and they had this, this way of fishing throughout the night so that in the morning they had their batch of fish to take, and it was fresh, and it was ready to be sold. But Peter and the disciples, they, they fished all night, and they caught nothing. Nothing at all. I think one thing we can note here is that, notice that I said we see Christ reveal himself in his control, and yet we don't see Christ do anything in verses 1 to 3. And I think it's sometimes that Christ's sovereign control is sometimes whispered and sometimes shouted. At some points, Christ's sovereign control is shouted. We are, it, is, it is immediately clear to us that he is, is in control of whatever situation that we see. And then at some times, it feels like, like what is going on here, Lord? And, and, and there's these whispers of what he is doing. And in this moment, it feels like a whisper. Because what do we, we see here? It seems that Christ is seemingly absent from, from this this moment, from this narrative, from these first three verses, where is he? And you even feel this sense of exasperation in Peter. He's like, I mean, I'm going to go fishing. What else am I going to do? And not only is there exasperation in his voice, but we have in verse 3, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. All night they caught nothing? Perhaps at the beginning, they were starting to think, well, maybe, you know, we've been following Jesus for three years. We haven't done this in a while. Maybe we're just rusty. 
After a few hours, they might have been, well, you know, maybe we just lost our good spots. We don't remember where we fished before. There's just this deepening sense of like, we're not going to catch anything. And this feeling of hopelessness in a boat is something the disciples are not unfamiliar with. In John chapter 6, we have recorded that in verses 16 to 21, that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. Seeing some similarities here. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You see, like, there's this connection. The disciples have been in this situation before, this sense of being exasperated on the sea, and they're confused. But I think, interestingly enough, the lack of fish, the end of verse 3, that that night they caught nothing, the lack of fish is a whispered, kind providence from God. The lack of fish is a whispered, kind providence. Because, like, it is astounding that they couldn't find any fish. This is not Blake McCullough going out to fish, right? I could go fishing five times and never find a fish. Can't keep my mouth shut long enough, or that's what my grandfather told me. So it's not me going out to fish with a fishing pole. These are experienced commercial fishermen. These are guys who, like, in, 20, in 2020, we have TV shows about. And they're going out with a net, not with a fishing pole. Like they, they couldn't catch anything, nothing. But here's the beautiful reality in that is that catching even one fish, catching even one fish would have made the kind provision that Christ provided that much less sweet. Catching one fish would have made that kind provision that Christ provided that much less sweet. Calvin says, God permitted them to toil to no purpose during the whole night in order to prove the truth of the miracle. For if they had caught anything, what followed immediately afterwards would not have so clearly manifested the power of Christ. Just one fish would have have changed it. But they toiled all night, all night working and striving and nothing. The text says that they caught nothing, and I'd like to argue that Obviously, literally, that is true, but in, in reality, they, they did catch something. They caught something, namely, they caught a vision, a glimpse of their future ministry in this night, in the difficulty that would follow them for the rest of their lives. In following Christ, we will experience similar moments where it seems like an answer from Christ is absent. There's like this, just this understanding that I, I know I want to follow Christ, but there is, it seems like in this situation, I am at a loss for words. We will often wait for this answer from Christ. And I can imagine it going through their minds. 
back to where Jesus said, you'll, you'll no longer be catching fish, but now you're fishers of men. And often in their ministries, in their future ministries, and the difficulty that awaited them, in, in a lot of ways, this is just a parable of what their life would be like. It was difficult. It was hard. Often they would toil and not see any visible fruit. Again, Calvin says, God often tries believers that he may lead them the more highly to value his blessing. If we were always prosperous, whenever we put our hand to labor, scarcely any man would attribute to the blessing of God the success of his exertions and would boast of their industry and would kiss their hands. But I do want us to see what Peter does. Because, again, like I said, I think I've been too difficult toward Peter been too harsh on Peter. Because Peter and the rest of the disciples were waiting. And as Elizabeth Elliot has popularized this term, Peter just did the next thing. He did the next thing. He said, I'm going fishing. Elizabeth Elliot popularized this term from an old poem that says, Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before the with earnest command, stayed on omnipotence, sna- safe neath his wing, leave all resultings, do the next thing. And interestingly enough, in Peter doing the next thing, Christ decided to reveal himself in the mundane of a fishing trip. In the mundane of them toiling all night for fish, he revo- revealed himself. And in that same way, Christ reminds us of his care in a myriad ways in our life. It's often we are looking for this dramatic thing, right? But, but, but Christ reminds us of his care in so many different ways throughout life. And he's called us to simply follow in faithful obedience. And so we, we see here, even in the first three verses, that it seems like Christ is absent, and yet, like, he's there. He's there all along. So we see Christ reveal himself in his control, and I think in verse 4 we see Christ reveal himself in his provision. We see Christ reveal himself in his provision. If you look at verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were able, not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. Jesus stood on the shore. Even the, the awesome power located in that phrase, that Jesus stood on the shore, that he was there. Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples didn't know who he was. Now, there are a lot of commentators that disagree. They're all smarter than I am, and so I'm just going to tell you, they didn't know who he, who he was. Do we know why? No. They just didn't. There are several theories. There are there are several understandings of why they didn't know who he was, but we know from the text that they did not know it was him. 
Although, we will say that this reality in verse 4, that they didn't know it was Jesus, corroborates several other stories in the gospel of a post-resurrection Jesus. That Jesus appeared to other people who, who did not recognize who he was. So Jesus stood on the shore, and they didn't know who he was, and he asked them this question. He says, children, do you have any fish? Or quite literally, um, in, in the original language, like, do you have any, any meat? Like, have you, have you gotten anything tonight? But more importantly, I think that first word, children, do you have any fish, is what we should focus on. Jesus already knew the answer to their question. This is the way that he has done things his entire ministry. This is, we, we see this throughout Scripture, even from the garden. When God asked questions to Adam, like Jesus knew the answer. Of course, he knew they didn't have any fish. And yet he speaks to them with this loving care as sons. He says, children. He speaks to them with, the care and tenderness of a father. Children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no, we don't. Working all night, no fish. But notice the surety in his voice in verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. This is the kind of thing where often the people who give this kind of advice aren't being helpful, right? This is like, in a sense, the kind of advice that I give to Sarah from the passenger seat when she's driving, right? Right? It's not helpful. From, from the beginning, like, often this kind of questioning is not helpful, but I want you to notice the contrast to that here. Because he actually does know. Often, I, in my arrogance, try to give this kind of advice, and it's not helpful. But Jesus here, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. There's sureness there. Sureness in the voice of a stranger, no less. What do the disciples do? They're like, man, we've been out here all night. Might as well try. And guess what happens? They find some. In fact, they find more than some. The text here says that they find a multitude. It reminds us even of Luke 5, and I think it would remind the disciples of that moment. Luke 5 tells us, and when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, also here in this moment, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is a reminder in this moment. This has happened to us before. Jesus says, let down your nets on the other side. And they do. And they find more fish than fathomable. The word here is multitude. 
because of the quantity of fish, literally because of the multitude of fish. And at that moment, in verse 7, John exclaims, it is the Lord. It's at that moment when John says, it's, it's the Lord. That's, that's who, who this is. And Peter, on brand, puts his outer cloak on and jumps into the water to come to Christ. And the rest of the disciples follow in the boat and they get to land. So what do we see from this text, from this section, that what's the purpose? Like, what, Why did Jesus do this? Why did John record this? I think first it's important for us to note that John realized that it was the Lord not by his voice, not by his face, but by this act of provision that he provided. The, the text says that they were 100 yards from land. After spending three years with a man, you would think that maybe from 100 yards you could understand and, and realize and recognize his voice. Or maybe from 100 yards you could see what he looked like. But before this moment, it doesn't say that they knew who he was. It says, in fact, they didn't know that it was Jesus. They didn't recognize him from his voice. They didn't recognize him from his face. But John, when he saw the provision that Christ had provided, he said, it is the Lord. I think we are easily and often given to our emotions, to the, the feeling based on our circumstances that lead us to hopelessness and to despair. And even as Lawson reminded me this morning, we have to ask this question, what is real? What is true? What is reality? And the reality is that Christ is the provider, the provision. And John realized it was Christ by this provision, this presence of Christ in their midst. He says, this is the Lord, by this power. And the reality for us is that we can trust him because he doesn't change. He's not just somehow different today, like doesn't care for his people. John realized it was the Lord by his voice, but notice what Peter does. Peter experienced great provision, provision deeper than some fish and some bread. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to look uh, here at, at the verse where it says that Jesus was on the shore, and what did he have beside him? A charcoal fire. Now, the only other time in all of Scripture that this term charcoal fire is used is in John 18, 18. If you've been with us or if you're familiar with the book of John, John 18 is the, is the text where Peter has denied Christ. It's the first time that Peter denies Christ as he's standing around a charcoal fire, as, as Christ is being questioned and mistreated. And Peter's standing around this charcoal fire, and it's the first time that he says, no, like, I, I don't know him. I don't, I don't follow him. And he gets to the shore after he has swam. And what does he see? The first thing that he sees is Jesus, and he looks beside him, and there's a charcoal fire. I can only imagine the pain that Peter felt at that moment. He realized 
maybe even then, realized the weight of what he had done. And yet, Christ didn't turn him away. He didn't push him back into the water. He didn't say, go back to the boat. How is that possible? How is it possible for Peter, who who had denied Christ three times, even in the presence of this very glaring reminder, how is that possible? It's because the death and the resurrection of Christ changed everything for Peter. The death and the resurrection of of Christ had, had changed everything for him. How could he approach the risen Lord? Well, his sins have been dealt with. And Peter, I can imagine him even thinking this as he's swimming toward the shore. He's like, it's too late to turn back now, right? I'm going, and here is Jesus. Peter experienced provision deeper than some fish and some bread that Jesus fed him. He he experienced this new life, this, this forgiveness beyond what he could fathom. And we look at Peter and we say, if, if, if it could happen for Peter, it could happen for us. If it could happen for Peter, then it can happen for us. But I think as a whole, as we, as we look back at verses 4 to 8, we just see the grace of Christ throughout this section. Even in verse 5, in asking them, do you have any fish? He knew the answer. He gave them the opportunity to confess their need. Not only did he ask them if they have any fish, he's the one who provided the fish. It's not that he just had some kind of knowledge about the fish and where they were. He's the one who provided the fish. We even know in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see his grace in asking them, letting them confess their need, but also his grace in providing the fish, but then also his grace. And that Peter ran, swam toward Christ, even after all that he had done. I think we have a temptation in our sin. We convince ourselves that Christ doesn't know And so we convince ourselves that the best plan of action is to hide. Like, if I I just don't broach the subject, then maybe we can get past this. Peter, Peter is an example for us in the opposite. He ran toward Christ. May we be encouraged by that action. We're, We're tempted to hide as if he doesn't already know when, when, What Scripture is telling us is don't hide, cling to him. Cling to him. Peter's our example in this, but also Paul. Peter ran towards Christ. Even after all he had done, we see the grace there. But I think the biggest picture of grace in this section is that Jesus provided for their need in a greater way than they could have ever imagined or planned for. This isn't just about fish and bread. This isn't just about breakfast. This isn't just about a fire on the side of the sea. Jesus provided for them in a way that 
like was so much greater than this. And I think often in our minds, we formulate, well, here's my need, Lord. I'm going to confess my need to you, and then let me, let me tell you the way that I think you should fix it. And when you don't fix it that way, like you obviously don't care about me or you don't have perfect wisdom because you didn't do it the way that I thought you should. He meets our needs often in a way that we do not desire, but he meets them out of his perfect wisdom. We can trust that he meets every need perfectly. Philippians 4.19 is a very misquoted verse. It says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I think the way around uh, misquoting that is to remind ourselves of what happened to the man who said it. What happened to Paul in his life that God's, Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He means that his wisdom is far above what we could ever comprehend. That his provision is something often different than what we would have planned or would have decided, and yet it is far better. So Jesus revealed himself, we see, in his sovereignty. Second, we see Jesus revealed himself in his provision. Finally, we see that Jesus revealed himself in relationship. If you look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they, set, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although... There were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They get on shore, and Jesus already has a fire in place. And in fact, it already had fish laid on it and bread. And then Jesus says to them, bring the fish that you caught, which I think is very generous of Jesus, right? Sure, they caught it, right? But he, he provided it. And I think even there is this parable of who, of, of our life and following Christ is that so often the, of, everything that we do is a gift from him. And so we find out that he got 153, or they got 153 large fish from that catch that Jesus told them to do. Now, there has been a long history of people who have created math equations from 153 and gotten tons of different meanings for this text. It would seem to me that he wants to point out that it was 153 fish, and he knew that. Right? This is, if you're wondering, John 21, you're like, this is kind of strange. It happened right after John, in many ways, seemed to end his book. Like, how can we make sure that, it, that it, is, it is known that this is an eyewitness account, that this is someone who actually knew what was going on? Tell them how many fish it was. 153 large fish. It was a lot of fish, and Christ provided But then Jesus invites them. And I think this is a time where the ESV does a disservice to 
the words of Christ. He says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. The, the literal words that he says is, he says, come and dine. They come to shore. He already has the fish laid out. He already has the bread there. And he says, come and dine. And I would argue this morning that come and dine is the invitation, the command of Christ throughout all of history. Come and dine. In Genesis 2, God gave a command to Adam and Eve. He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. What provision? You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of that one. And in Genesis 3, Satan came in in the form of a serpent and said, did God actually say that? Sowing doubt in, in the minds of Adam and Eve about the good provision of God and said, did God actually say that you couldn't eat of that? You won't die. And thus sin entered into the world. And, and from that moment, we've been longing for this moment at the end of history when all will be made right. And guess what the Old Testament prophets, what language they use to talk about that end of history? Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well refined. When the Old Testament prophets wanted to speak of this end of days, this time when, when, when Christ would reign with all his people, what word does he use? He uses food language. We even look in, in the book of John, in John chapter 6, the same place they are now, he says, it says that Jesus fed 5,000 people, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This has been the call of Jesus from the beginning. Come and dine. In Luke 22, it says he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them. And Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The call throughout history has been come and dine. And Jesus says to his disciples here, come and dine. This is the reign of Christ. Come and dine, have fellowship with him. Albeit this is a specific, unique time of fellowship that he had with his seven disciples here on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, and yet that is his call to us. If we can, we can have fellowship with Christ. So I think we see here that Christ calls them to come and dine, but then he's, he does something else. 
He is the one who serves them the bread and the fish. Verse 13 says, Jesus came and took the bread (coughs) and gave it to them, and so with the fish. The service of Christ is why he came. And I think this is something that somewhat can make us uncomfortable if we misunderstand what the service of Christ is. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know from the life of Christ that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. We know that he went to the cross, the ultimate picture of service. We know that he gave the Spirit. We know from his life that that was the reason he came. But we also know that that is the service of Christ today. We, we could sit here all day and talk about the ways that Christ is serving his people. He is interceding for us. He is providing for us. He is loving us. He is leading us. He is, he is walking with us. Like there's, there's no end to the things that Christ is doing to serve his people. And we think, like, Christ serving? The only reason that we would have any uncomfortable, uncomfortability about Christ being a servant is if we misunderstood what service was. John Piper said, does this belittle the risen Christ to say that he was and is and will ever be the servant of his people? It would if servant meant one who takes orders or if we thought we were his masters. Yes, that would dishonor him, but it does not dishonor him to say that we are weak and needy. It does not dishonor him to say that he is the only one who can service us with what we need most. It does not dishonor him to say that he is an inexhaustible spring of love and that the more he helps us and the more we depend on his service, the more amazing his resources appear. Like we, you look around us at the best leaders, the best leaders are servants. You see even here Jesus giving them this example. It says Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Christ is that perfect servant. I think how do, how do we apply this section in verses 9 to 14? How do we apply this and then we'll close? I think the first way that we apply this is that we proclaim that same phrase that Christ proclaimed, come and dine. This morning, if you are not in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, like the call is for you, come and dine. Come partake of this fellowship that is greater than any other. Come partake of this, this one who, who has solved the problem of your biggest need with his life who has provided the biggest provision that anyone could ever provide for you. Come and dine. Come have relationship with the God who created you. And even for those of us in Christ this morning, come and dine. In the book of Revelation, there's letters to churches, as you know, and the church of Laodicea, uh, the text says that they were lukewarm. And Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you want anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Like, this is the language of, of believers. Like, it is easy for us to, 
to forget the reality, to forget the reality of of who Christ is and what he has done and what he has provided. And we need to be reminded from his word and from his people and and from from the songs that we sing and from uh, time together. We need to be reminded that this is the reality that Christ calls us to come and die and to have fellowship with him. To have fellowship with him. But then we have to ask the question like, Christ did this for them to show them his love, to show them his care, to show them, to reveal to them the relationship that they had with him. But also, surely, surely he was showing them how to interact with each other. That service is not something for the least of these. The service is for the greatest. If you want to be great, you will serve. Even Paul reminds us in Philippians that we should have have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's telling that Jesus reveals himself through the service of a meal. I think we have been served in a way that we cannot even fathom, and, and a call for us in, in some sense is like, can we, can we have that service toward each other? Even Wednesday night, as we heard about faithful labor in the church, like the reality that we, we exist as a family together so that we can serve one another. As we close, I think in some ways this text comes full circle. Because when I first sat down to the text, it was, there were a lot of questions like, what's the purpose? Why is this here? And there are tons of different theories and guesses and all of these things. And I finally got to the reality that one of the major purposes of this text is to do exactly for us what Christ did for his disciples in the text. One of the purposes is, is to remind us that he is in control. That even when it feels like we are waiting, and we've been waiting for a while, he's in control. When it feels like we are spinning our wheels, it reminds us that he is our provider, and he provides for us in ways that we often don't understand or wouldn't choose. It's a reminder for us of his providence, of his care. It's a reminder for us of who we are in Christ, the relationship that he has bought for us. So church, this morning, be encouraged. Be reminded of these truths. 